we took Ed to that dentist for his first checkup. And the dentist was really, really nice, but he was quite keen, quite keen on teeth. Do you often find that dentists are very keen on teeth? Mm. Yeah. No, but it's like, it's, so the, my dentist as a kid was a drunk and he, you'd, you'd turn up and he had a big red face and he'd sort of look in your mouth and be like, yeah, they're not falling out. Off you go. Give him a polish. This fellow was really, like, really keen on teeth. And, and like he's, he, this was when Ed was like, l- was less than two. And he was like, well, really, he should be flossing. And I was like, how do you expect me to get this two-year-old to floss? Well, I don't floss. Why would I floss? Well, I'm not going to tell him to floss. Kate flosses. And Nikki, Nikki flosses. Yeah, Nikki's a big flosser where I use the little, is it the teepees? The little yeah, yeah. interdentals. Yeah. Yes, Incidentals, yes. yeah. So maybe it's a maybe it's a female thing, Flossie. I just can't be doing with rope in my mouth. Not not a fan. No fan. And not a dog. And but he was just sort of saying, really, you know, really should be getting him to brush his teeth just before he goes to bed. And like the last thing you want to do with a kid who doesn't want to go to sleep is be like, right, into the bathroom with you. We'll be don't give you know, like, don't give him any milk before he goes to bed. And you're like, well, how do you expect me to get him to go to sleep? And then he started banning on about how we, this my, my two-year-old son should be flossing. And I just thought, look, this is your... I get that you like teeth, but your aspirations are way too high. Well, those teeth are going to go in about five years, five or six well, years. I, so it doesn't matter if you treat is, them badly. It's the next lot you need to This is my whole for. thing. Like, they fall out anyway, so just who cares? Like, who cares what he does with his teeth? Like, he brushes them, you know, once a week, probably all right. <laughs> it's probably better if they fall out naturally rather than fall out because they're rotten, though, maybe. I'm no dentist. Real, I'm no dentist, but that's my that's my thought process on this one. The the bit of parenthood that I'm most frightened of is the bit where teeth start falling out because I really really hate it. I hate seeing kids with gaps in their teeth. I hate the thought of teeth being wobbly. I hate the idea of them dangling. I I might I might have like a midlife crisis at that point and just disappear for two years and then you, come back when he's got a foot a full mouth. You hate what it says about your social status when you have a, a child with a gap in his mouth. Oh, gap tooth teeth! Come on, no gap. Yeah, it's one of the great, one of the great pleasures in childhood is is teasing a wobbly tooth with your tongue. Is that not? Oh, you know, come on! Who Jim, needs? Leave me alone. Who needs a computer? Who needs? Who needs a console when you've got a wobbly tooth? George has got a solution to this. He's like a shark. He's currently got two rows of teeth because his his bottom <laughs> two front teeth, adult teeth, have have come in, but the milk teeth haven't fallen out. So it's oh. quite the freakish thing. Is oh, this, this is awful. Is this better this. or worse than considering eating mashed potato, Rory? No, oh, it's, it, it's on a par. And ironically, one of the things that you can eat whilst you don't have any teeth is mashed potato. Oh, this is, I mean, oh, this is horrific. This is actually Set Piece Menu, the podcast for friends <laughs> talk fiddle over foods. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Rory Smith, Colin Firth, Stephen Wyeth, Colin Farrell, and Andy Hinchcliffe, Colin Oscopy. Uh, oh, it... I love it. Love it. <laughs> how did it go? The greatest Everything... intro. The greatest intro ever. Everything all right? Uh, yeah, I think my anal margin and KCOM are A1. Are you broadcasting from, from a far off land? Why? Have you sat on your AirPods? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm broadcasting via my mobile phone device. So I don't know whether that... Has that softened me? Softened me? Is that, is that good? Is it a good thing? Or do you just can't hear me? Let's just say that NASA are currently in better contact with Crew Dragon on the International Space Station. Is that good or bad? Depending on what we're talking about and how much involvement I'm going to have, it could be a good thing that you can't hear me. The food is chinch? Well, I've actually got actually some homemade chocolate chip cookies. Which were, mm-hmm. I don't know how you feel about cookies, but hard on the outside, 
but that gooey, runny consistency in the middle, that that's vital to a chunky cookie, I feel. But homemade, they were delicious. Were they as good as these bad boys? Uh, they're shop-bought, though, aren't they? No, they're not. They're wife-made. Her icing technique is appalling. It's not icing, it's chocolate. Her chocolating technique <laughs> is appalling. It's all they, over the place. They are very tasty peanut butter oat cookies with excellently mm. drizzled white chocolate. They look the delicious. Put a tactical plan on that biscuit. That's how confusing the chocolate lines look to me. <laughs> I don't want a tactics board on my cookie. The football <laughs> is chinch. Do you know what we're talking about today? Ah, uh, it's what makes a good game, isn't it? What makes a good game of football? Absolutely right. Well, after a couple of weeks of a complicated idea that we tried to make simple, we're going to do the opposite today and take a simple question and make the answer massively complicated. Our starting point is exactly as Chinch said. What makes a good game? You might assume the answer is goals. If it was, we would not be spending far too much time talking about it today. So coming up, what makes a good game? You can get in touch with the podcast. Setpiecemenu at gmail.com is our email address. Find us on Twitter, on Facebook and our YouTube channel as well. Now, if there were a pie chart of correspondence subjects, we would probably be able to fill in most of it with VAR, offside, and latterly, the European Super League. We've done the first two plenty over the last few weeks, during which I rather naively opened something of a can of worms without using Chinch's left foot to do so, by the way. <laughs> Casually suggesting that people get in touch with their solutions to the ESL debate, given that nobody in football has managed to come up with one themselves. So a little divertissement uh, that might be something that you say Woo! Rory in Rance uh, on, on that on that because but what by the way well done on Rance it was Chappers who said Rance and you backed him up if I'm honest I felt a little bit of a dick in that whole exchange because so Chappers I can't remember why he mentioned why oh it's that's right it's Fraser Hornby the Scottish kid who's on loan there talking about the Scotland national team and Chappers said quite rightly that Fraser Hornby's on loan uh, on loan at Rance and I was like yeah that's an interesting fact but Micah and Chris found it hilarious and I, so they were laughing and Chappers was laughing as they were laughing. And I was a bit like, I felt like a really kind of, I felt really nerdy, but I was a bit like, well, this isn't funny because all he's done is, is say a name correctly. And I felt like I was the one who didn't get the joke and I felt really serious and humorless. The terrible dumbing down of football to the extent that you can't say the name of a French town. It, it, is, the, it is the football team that is spelt the most differently to how it's pronounced though. That is... Bearing in mind is there's only true? five letters. And none yeah, of I mean, them it, really it, seem to make any sense whatsoever once you combine them. Yeah, that's an interesting subject, actually. Which is the, the most, the, the football team with the name that is most vexing to, to say compared to how it's spelt? That's probably a contender, but I bet there's more. During the World Cup in Brazil, people trying to say Belo Horizonte correctly. which is Belo Horizonte. Horizonte, yeah. That's a good one. The Brazilian pronunciations are, are, are quite um, are quite annoying. Rob was always a big one for correcting anybody who said the name of a Portuguese or Brazilian city slightly incorrectly. <laughs> he was very proud of the fact that. So you'd be like, "Yeah, I, I remember going to Porto Alegre," and he'd be like, "Porto Alegre," and you'd be like, "Rob, just just leave it, mate. Come on, you don't need to do this every single time. You know what I mean?" That's an, if if listeners have suggestions, I would be fascinated by that. Uh, this this dumbing down thing is. Uh, I appreciate this is already a tangent to the part of the program that is a tangent to the main part of the program. But uh, Duncan Geddes, who gets in touch quite often, has has got in touch along the same lines as what happened to to Rory on Monday Night Club and Chappers on Monday Night Club 
Hi, folks, he says. This anecdote is prompted by the uncomfortable experience of Chris Sutton and Micah Richards asking Rory to explain expected goals, as if he invented the concept <laughs> or adapted it from the theoretical work <laughs> of Professor John Goals. Um, he's, a, he's, a, he's a Southampton fan, Duncan, and he says this. At St Mary's, I occasionally sit next to a guy who considers himself a bit of a stat geek, but mostly talks nonsense. The best example came a couple of years ago when Dusan Tadic missed a good chance. The guy got up and yelled in apparent seriousness, that was an expected goal. The um, the game is truly <laughs> mad. Gone says uh, Duncan. So it, it is correspondence, but it's a correspondence not about the European Super League, which I promised a divertissement on. So here we go, dear Hugh, Rory, Stephen, and Chunch. This is from Reese Hayward. Love the pod, etc., etc. People are getting lazy with that. In response to Hugh's call for casual football fans to get in touch with their thoughts on the idea of a European Super League, here is my two penneth. I'm very much a casual fan of the sport. I have no real affinity to a team, save the Welsh national side, and spend far more time listening to football podcasts than I do actually watching the game itself. I rarely go to live matches and tune into, at best, the main Sunday afternoon matches and the odd midweek game. Sounds like a chinch slate, if ever there was one. Yeah, yeah. It's Ronnie Reese. Well, aside from the unmissable weekly dose of previously food-inspired musings that emanate from SPM, I've concluded that much of my interest in football comes from the more cerebral end of the ubiquitous hype machine that surrounds it, as opposed to the beautiful game itself. Much of it is quite tedious. There are, however, two exceptions to this. One, the knockout stages of the Champions League, and two, the World Cup. The first one is the part of the season where I'm most likely to enjoy the highest calibre of football with the importance of the games and their knockout nature providing an extra level of interest. And the World Cup, because it only happens once every four years and is a brilliant carnival that captures everyone's imagination. Plus, fans cry after their team gets knocked out. So, to the ESL. Would I like to watch Real Madrid versus Manchester City and the like every week? In theory, because of point one then I would. However, without the extra spice added to it being a cup competition in the very climax of the season, I suspect this interest would quickly wane and I'd remain at best a casual fan, only tuning in when to watch a top-of-the-table clash and becoming as uninterested in a lower mid-table scrap between Manchester United and Atletico Madrid as I currently am for Wolves against West Ham. It's also not inconceivable that the legions of global fans, teams such as Manchester United have acquired through years of success and entertaining football and the financial strength this has afforded them, might start to dry up once they also become one of the also-rans and a new big six or top four emerges, taking the best players from the lower teams and dominating financially. Perhaps protecting a large slice of the smaller pie is better than vying for a smaller piece of a larger pie. Long live Wolves versus West Ham. That is Reese Hayward. Tom Patterson says hello from Australia. Good day, he doubles down. I'm writing from a very humid Brisbane, Australia, a worthy destination for a future live pod. Tom, if you pay... Absolutely. Firstly, well done on putting together 200 episodes of SPM. It's a brilliant podcast and I always look forward to listening each week. I can safely say my knowledge of the road systems in and around Greater Manchester and bakeries in and around Didsbury have improved tenfold. Uh, recently, I was listening back to episode 173, SPM European Super League, and episode 200, Project Big Picture, and was contemplating an alternate idea on how Europe's elite clubs can continue to cash in on their global profile without compromising the status of the relevant domestic competition. So here it goes. The European Fives Super League. Like the Cricket 2020s or Rugby Sevens, a shortened version of the game where existing clubs can develop a specific team within their ranks. Played in purpose-built outdoor grounds or stadiums. Current contracted players can be eligible for selection for both the 11-a-side team and the 5-a-side team. Like the IPL and Cricket, former players can come out of retirement to play for a club's 5-a-side team. Teams will be able to select players from current and previous eras, appealing to a wide audience of football fans and hopefully winning over a few traditionalists as well. So, for example, you could theoretically have a match-up between Barcelona and Manchester United, which has Barcelona 5 Fives, Valdez, Xavi, Piquet, Messi and Suarez against Manchester United fives, Van der Sar, Rooney, Mata, Scholes, Pogba. While I'm not naive to the imperfections of the, the idea and traditional football fans will definitely have a moan, 
it does feel like it strikes a balance of sorts. I should note, this is the first time I've put this idea to paper. And if anyone decides to take this idea and run with it, please remember me. Stay safe and keep up the great work. That is Tom, who is in Brisbane. Guinness Soccer Sixes have been on the phone and they'd like their competition back. Is it? Now, there is a risk that I'm going to take this seriously just to be contrary. But there is a kernel of a point there, isn't there? That, that one thing that football hasn't done that other sports have is, is consider sort of toying with its form in a serious way to see if there is a, there is a, if there is a kind of market for it. So if you think about the way we consume media now, and it's all about GIFs and, and techers and memes and stuff, you do wonder whether a shorter, a shorter form of the game might find a natural constituency. And if you were to corral that to traditional club tribe, tribal loyalties, you might find a market for it. And it's, it's, I'm not saying that I'd like to do that or that I think the, the five-a-side game could ever overtake the 11-a-side 90-minute game where, where like West Ham Wolves becomes like, like test cricket and people are like, oh, it's 90, it's 90 minutes, it's, it's really intense. Um, but you'd, it is interesting that football ha- hasn't really, like, yeah, the soccer sixes and stuff was all semi-serious exhibition stuff for charity, that kind of thing. But it is funny that football's never thought, actually, I wonder if there is a way that we could, um, we could toy with the format and see if people like that as well, rather than instead of. That's interesting. A lot of the big clubs do have futsal teams, don't they? But that doesn't seem to be taken very seriously. So there is a, there is a shorter form of the game that has the behemoth clubs attached to it but still seems fairly, fairly underrepresented in terms of its TV coverage or indeed the number of people that, that go and watch it and take it seriously. I, yeah, but I, the second one, they're, they're probably not unrelated, are they? But it's also, I guess, to do with, with investment and how seriously the clubs take it. So in, and it, I'm conscious that it might be that futsal, futsal in Brazil, for example, is, is I think genuinely relatively important. Like they care, you know, people care about futsal in Brazil. But you, you wonder whether if the club's kind of invested enough in it and bought into it enough, then it might it might stand a better chance of taking off. If the clubs do something and it's kind of sort of half arsed and they're not really that, not really that interested, then it's not then fans can kind of detect that and and mirror that approach. But it is yeah, I mean futsal's a futsal's kind of a different sport though, isn't it? It's and I suppose that's that's what that's what any kind of like five side competition would be but it, I just wonder if yeah if teams inve- if teams thought about it and invested in it and it became a thing then it wouldn't necessarily be a bad idea I feel it's a nonsense idea it should only be played on a computer thanks Chinch <laughs> thanks robots Chinch um, there were so many emails about uh, European Super League particularly in the last few days to those that we didn't have time to talk uh, talk about thank you very much indeed particularly Kieran Manning and Raj Odin had uh, excellent points both mentioning Ferenc Varos which is uh, nice and actually reads as it looks, pretty much. Uh, before we move on, I wanted to touch briefly on some of the correspondence that's arrived since our episodes on the mainstream. And Tim Stillman, who contributed last week, you remember about David Beckham, uh, has got back in touch after we read out that uh, email. Last week's episode, again, says Tim, really got me thinking, particularly on your discussion about players that hit a cultural moment and whether or not they do so deliberately. I think it's almost always unintentional when a player or other famous figure does this. I recall reading an interview with Noel Gallagher about Oasis's crossover from music press fame to tabloid fame somewhere between 1994 and 1996. He explained that when he was writing Definitely Maybe in his council flat in the early 90s, he wasn't thinking this album will come to define the moment in which we all live, but rather Oasis unwittingly benefited from several cultural phenomena that happened coincidentally. Rory referenced the explosion of the lad culture, which embraced Paul Gascoigne and then David Beckham, and Oasis rode that cultural wave too. It's also significant that Oasis' first single, 
was released just weeks after the suicide of Kurt Cobain, a figure who very publicly wrangled with Nirvana's crossover into the mainstream. Oasis accidentally jumped into a vacuum. I think you can say the same about Beckham, who jumped into a void vacated by Gascoigne, whose marginalization from the England setup almost exactly coincides with Beckham's rise. In a similar time frame, Gascoigne moved from comedic figure to tragic, as revelations about his private life, including struggles with alcohol and incidents of alleged domestic abuse, surfaced, and he transitioned from an aspirational figure to one of pity and self-destruction. Meanwhile, Beckham perfectly struck the boys want to be him and girls want to uh, marry him note. Uh, also, tellingly, Gaza had left England to play in Italy and then Scotland, just as the Premier League was formed and experienced its boom years. In 1998, Gascoigne's international career ended, and so he faded from the public eye in a sense at the same time that Beckham's star was on the rise. To conclude a rambling and tortured analogy, David Beckham was oasis to Gascoigne's nirvana. Marcus Rashford's campaign has arrived in a culturally and very significant moment, hot on the heels of the murder of George Floyd during a global pandemic and at a time when a democratically unseated US president is refusing to leave office peacefully. One day, these will be recognised as significant in Rashford's ascension against a backdrop of civil unrest and period of protest. 2020 will quickly be recognized as a time of great upheaval for the world, resulting in a number of social and demographic changes we're yet to fully realize. Rashford also probably doesn't realize and probably isn't really interested in the fact that he happens to be conducting his commendable campaign at a time when the social and global conditions are ripe for it. Uh, and just before we get on to that, finally from Himal Shah, unblocked by Rory on Twitter and writing almost an email a week to celebrate. Dear Hugh, Steve, Rory and Andy, I really enjoyed your last pod on footballers in the mainstream. I thought Shane Thomas's email was excellent and I nodded in agreement with most of it. I think we have a way to go, though, still within the sport on how we view black footballers. I'm a Liverpool fan who attends a few matches every season. Now, I completely get all our tribalism, the panto and booing players we don't like, etc. But the treatment that we give Raheem Sterling, a, a young black footballer who realised that the club under Brendan Rodgers post Suarez was not going to be challenging for titles and the club who was not going to give him the wages he thought he deserved. And so was then sold to Manchester City for a significant transfer fee has been different to other want-away players like Coutinho and Suarez. Coutinho twice went on strike and missed matches with a bad back and Suarez had his biting misdemeanors along with also trying to go on strike during pre-season and yet both are thought of much more fondly than Sterling. I'm not sure if this is because of the media who portrayed Sterling as a greedy black footballer with a greedy black agent or as Coutinho and Suarez largely escaped that treatment or if it was because Sterling moved to another Premier League club but I've been very uncomfortable with the booing at Anfield. Although Sterling pushed for a move he never went on strike. In a similar vein the difference in how our supporters have treated injured players has been very different with Daniel Sturridge portrayed as lazy, whereas Adam Lallana was a top professional, but just unlucky. Again, I'm not sure if this was media fit driven or fans driven. Rant over, says Hamal. Yeah, the thing with Sterling is that, and that's a really valid point. I, th I think there's certain things that are relevant that aren't to do with, with the colour of his skin. The, the fact he went to Man City, I think is significant rather than to Barcelona. I think most fans of most clubs find it easier to deal with with players going abroad than, than leaving for a domestic rival. I think there was a sense of, I don't think Sterling's camp, if I'm honest, played the whole thing, the, the leaving of Liverpool especially well, although I equally don't think Liverpool played it particularly intelligently either. Um, but that, that it would be a leap to say that his his race isn't relevant at all. I think that that, that there is something slightly uncomfortable about about the level of toxicity. I would point out that Coutinho and Suarez, I think were both booed really heartily when they came back to Anfield with Barcelona. I don't think either of them got a standing ovation and Suarez particularly came in for quite a lot of stick, but he's right, Hamal's right, that they're probably remembered a bit more fondly than, than Sterling, but equally, you know, I don't want to say that's entirely because Sterling's black, 
because I don't think it is. I think there's there's other stuff at play, not least the fact that he kind of left before his peak. Whereas with 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 Suarez, certainly Liverpool felt that they that they had a couple of years of him at his absolute best. And with Coutinho, I guess the money was so high, and what Liverpool then went on to achieve was so good that that the ranking dissipated a bit. But yeah, there's it's really hard to separate completely Sterling's treatment from Sterling's Sterling's colour. Correspondence of any kind to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Um, it was Anibale Frossi. Well, it was more famously Gianni Brera. Actually, as far as we're concerned, it was Rory Smith quoting Gianni Brera's remembering of what Anibale Frossi originally said in 1930s Italy, that nil-nil is the perfect result. The reasoning was that a goal is draw is the expression of total balance between the attack and the defence of the two teams. Now, Twitter trolls who abuse any number of people about the match of the day running order each week may well disagree with that, but the convention is that the more goals, the better the game. Although if you watch the oft-mentioned Portsmouth 7, Reading 4 from 2007, it might be that there are indeed exceptions. In fact, are there more than just exceptions? Is it actually not a rule in the first place at all? Every match, unless it involves a team managed by Paul Jewell, has the potential to be its own little thing of beauty. And that beauty can manifest itself in a number of ways, including, as the Frossi Brera Smith triumvirate would posit, a nil-nil. So it's time to ask the simple question, what makes a good game? Is it the significance, the story, the tension, the tactics, or perhaps even a special individual performance? What makes a good game? Does it ever involve Andy Hinchcliffe? Um, very, very rarely. But surely we have to then separate score lines from the actual game and the performances of the teams. And if there's all these different elements that different people might look at to make up a good game, then surely the greatest game has to be a combination of all those elements. And the score line is irrelevant then, really, isn't it? What we actually experience during the course of the game, the drama, the technical ability, collective performance, individual performance. If you can put all that, smush all that into one game, is the scoreline, does the scoreline mean it was a good game or bad game? Clearly it doesn't because nil-nils kind of have all those elements, yet you don't have any goals. Can you think of an example, Chinch, of, of, of exactly that in which you were involved? Uh, if I put some thought into this, uh, and I have known about the topic for a number of days, but with the Nations League front and centre in my mind, it's been very, very difficult to think of matches. But what I'll do is while you're, the, you're waffling on, sorry, talking informatively, I will try and make some notes now on the hoof. Go. So I would say that the one, that nil-nils can be top-class games. You can have a brilliant nil-nil. But I would say that it can't ever be an absolutely kind of you know, one of the all-time classics, because I think for that to happen, you do need that that moment of release, that euphoria that comes with a goal. That is the emotion of football. So, but I think you can definitely detach scoreline from quality. And you can also, I, I, so th- th- this has kind of come about for two things. One is that in, the, in that period when there were loads of weird straws in the Premier League, which seems to have kind of dissipated a little bit, there was, there was all this talk of whether this was going to be the greatest ever Premier League season. And isn't it wonderful to have all these goals? And I, and I remember thinking, well, well, no, because if this happens all the time, then it stops being special. And if, This like, is what we've been talking two... about, isn't it, with, with all these goals yeah. going in? We, we've discussed this and saying, actually, it's a bit naff, isn't it? There comes a point, I think, and this ties in then into the European Super League discussion that is, is rumbling on, is that I think that, that often we... we we as a football culture kind of misunderstand what we want from games of football. Because if you have lots and lots of games where there's lots and lots of goals, 
each goal loses its me- its its meaning and becomes less of a moment of release. You want a goal to to be the kind of the climax of something. And if if you know or if you expect most games to end like five three or you know four two, then naturally the significance of each of each individual goal diminishes. But also, I think with the clubs thinking about a super league, are underestimating how much of the appeal of a game is to do with tension and stakes and to an extent, as, as a couple of those emails suggested, rarity. That, that Real Madrid versus Bayern Munich as a Champions League semi-final, amazing. Real Madrid versus Bayern Munich when one's 12th and one's 15th in a Super League and it's February and it doesn't really mean anything, not so great. Just the same as, as West Brom against Burnley, like, except on like a European scale. And it just made me think, kind of, what is it, do we, what is it that we want from each individual game? And the two things that I can think bear this out to me, I was so that Portsmouth Reading game was either preceded by or followed by, I can't remember which, Spurs beating Reading 6 4. And I was there and there were loads and loads of goals and it was funny, but it did not feel like elite sport. And I think that's the problem with, with really high scoring games is it doesn't feel elite. And part of what we want from a game is, is eliteness and that sense that we are watching mass, you know, masters at work and th- th- this is really high quality stuff. On the flip side, the, I think the best game I've ever seen on TV was Germany nil, Italy two in the 2006 World Cup semi-final, which was nil-nil until about the 118th minute. And that would have been a great game, even if it had gone to penalties. It didn't necessarily need... Those goals capped it off and made it, I think, just about, just about the perfect football match. But the fact that there weren't... You know, the, you didn't feel while you're watching that game, do you not be nice if there was a goal? Because it's two two high quality teams attacking each other, and it was the stakes were high, the quality level was high. There was lots of drama. There was there was it was compelling viewing. The fact there wasn't a goal didn't really didn't really offend you particularly or make you think this is boring. When the goals came, they added to the drama and vaulted it over that bar into kind of true classic territory. And that I think is the is the standard of what of what we really want from a game. It's where it means something. Everyone's good at it, and you you feel you feel absorbed by it, regardless of the scoreline. It, it must change depending on what perspective you're looking at the game from. If you're a fan, if you're a coach, if you're a player, if you're an analyst or a pundit, you will look at very different. Because to me, when I was playing, clearly as a as a professional, your job is to win, not to. Even though yes, it's an entertainment business, but I guarantee you, how many games we came off thinking. It isn't about the fans. It's about us as a group of players winning this game because ultimately that's what we're charged with doing. So surely a fan's view, all those elements you mentioned there, Rory, absolutely. But as a pro, as a, as a coach and as an analyst, how many of those elements actually come into play for them? Well, that's surely we have to look at this from the point of view of the majority and the majority yeah. are, the, are the spectators because professionals will analyse it in completely different ways. The results will be the most significant. We, we have to view it through the, the prism of, of what is entertaining us or what is keeping us as spectators coming back week in, week out. I think yeah. I agree with everything that's been said. I think emotion is the critical thing, isn't it? That for, yeah. for as long as the, the game lasts, you want to be riding the crest of an, an emotional experience within the game for as much as that as possible. Yeah, it can ebb and flow a little bit, but you need the drama, you need the tension. It doesn't necessarily need goals, but it needs excitement. It needs to keep you gripped right through to the conclusion and, and have that sense 
I think it's also important that sense that there's something riding on it and, and that can mean different things to different people. You know, if, if you don't go regularly, then just seeing the team win could be the thing that keeps you engaged because you want to make sure that on those, you know, if you only get a, a few chances a season to go and watch your team, you want to make, you, you pray that they're going to win, win on those rare occasions. Whereas if you're a season ticket holder, you might view it in, in the hole a little bit more, but you have to have an, an emotional attachment to the game, I think. But you, you've obviously, you three have watched more games as, as fans than I probably ever have. Talk about emotions there. Is, is, is winning, say, four or five nil, is that better or worse in inverted commas than, say, winning five four with a last minute goal? It, it depends. Steve's exactly right. It depends on the emotional gauge, engagement, but the levels of emotional engagement as well. For a, yeah. for a fan who is completely obsessed with their team above all else and any other consideration, winning five nil is a good game. They want to run up the score as much as possible. They want to win 8, 10, 12 nil if they want. They don't, they don't derive the emotional engagement from the closeness of the game. They, they, yeah. they derive their joy from the amount that they can put on that other team. So, so yeah, winning 5 nil is always going to be, for that fan, a good game. Winning 5-4 will also be a good game for that fan, but it might take in a wider constituency of people who will consider it to be a good game with those exceptions that we've always already mentioned. And Roy, the, the 6-4 was in December 2007. The 7-4 was in uh, September 2007. So we can all remember the uh, what well, the autumn winter stage of the Premier League in 2007 really being full of mad cappery. Yeah, but that, that was the thing that it was those games were madcap. So they were fun, but they weren't. I wouldn't have said either one was a great game. It was it was a fun afternoon. It was, a, you know, it was it was a pantomime. And it was brilliant. You, you, obviously, I didn't pay to go, but if you had paid to go, you would you would feel as though you had got your 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 money's worth out of it. But I I don't think either one qualifies as a great game. I don't think the standard was high enough. I don't. It it lacked it lacked too many of those kind of criteria. So the, the stakes weren't high because it was early in the season. Don't think any anyone in Reading were probably at risk of relegation as Reading were always at risk of relegation despite having Shane Long. Um, but, you know, it was early in the season, nothing, nothing was riding on it, nothing was kind of going to be decided by those games. And the fact that there were so many goals after a while made you think, you kind of, everyone knows what that reaction's like. You you laugh, you're not kind of absorbed by it, because you kind of stand back and, and you laugh. I've spoken to mates who are Liverpool fans who felt the same during the, the 7-2 against Aston Villa, that like the third and the fourth probably really hurt. But the sixth and the seventh, it was just like well, this is this is quite. Yeah, funny. You've taken like, what... you've taken too many punches, haven't you? Basically, it's just like there's, yeah. there's nothing left, isn't it? You think, well, right, all my emotions so, been stoked up. It's gone now. Now that's just there's just nothing. I, I can't just, react. I can't react to that. It's almost like you become less of a fan because because it, it's you're kind of you experience it as an out of body thing. I guess Southampton fans would have felt the same during the nine nil against Leicester that that really did look does like look like an exception now that they're going to win the title. The um the after you know the fourth fifth is is humiliating the seventh the eighth the ninth are like well hang on are you is, talking about southampton is, is or Leicester winning the title or are you, are you talking about it's been there, it's a two horse race for the title between southampton and it Leicester. is my understanding wow. that both of them are going to win the title but <laughs> we maybe have, have got certain criteria there that we can kind of say are kind of ingredients that are necessary for it to be a truly great game so that would be you need tension because i think I'm writing the these thing down. with winning, Sorry, like unique, a team winning unique five tension i'll just write that down unique tension yeah carry on not unique. You you need, you need. tension. Chip. Oh, you, you just need. need just normal tension. Just normal just tension. Normal, so just bog normal standard tension. tension. Bog standard. This bog is not standard. Tension. Off the shelf tension. Run of the tension. mill. Run of the mill. Bog this is not a great advert for AirPods, is it? <laughs> really isn't. 
<laughs> the, um, terrible. It's either a bad advert for AirPods or a bad advert for being in your 50s. The, <laughs> the, um, the thing about a 5-0 is that it can be a great display. So Man City beat Watford 6-0 in the cup final. It's a great display by Man City, brilliant performance, but it's not a great game because there's no, there's no kind of drama for anybody else. Like, obviously, as you say, if you're a Man City fan, you will, you'll take that. But as a neutral watching that game, you'll be like, well, this is, you know, after four, it's probably a bit pointless. You'll be like, well, I know what's going to happen now. So the ending's not been ruined for me, but there is, I'm not, I'm no longer absorbed by it. So I think, do you need a little bit of balance in the game? Can yeah, truly definitely. great games have to be balanced yeah. between the teams? They have to be a contest, don't they? Well, to pick up on the high-scoring thing, again, it does it not depend on on the moment and who the opponent is? To win a derby four or five nil is going to give you considerably more satisfaction than your top team beating a mid-ranking team by the same score. At that point, you do get back to the thing. Well, the, the second, third goal they they bring you jubilation. The fourth and the fifth, perhaps not so much. Whereas in a derby you're really then reveling in the despair of your rivals as you, as you run up the score. So the, the Manchester derby, Manchester City regularly score five or six, but when they did so against Manchester United, that will feel considerably more glorious than when they do it regularly against Burnley. And then that brings us on to how perhaps you start as a fan at the game, living beyond the parameters of the 90 minutes, because Rory mentioned Liverpool losing to Aston Villa 7-2. Well, as a fan, if you're a Liverpool fan at that game, yeah, I'd imagine that the third and fourth goals would have hurt particularly. But after that, you start thinking, oh, what about the humiliation that's going to follow from rival supporters glorifying in this moment? And likewise, Southampton fans from the Leicester 9-0, well, many of them had, lot, many of the, many of them had left the ground by the time. What, Chinch, what, I'm trying to make... What are you point. doing? <laughs> I was ignoring it. I was trying to ignore him. It was like a sexy version of just a minute. I was going to see how long you can keep talking while I was making sweet, sweet love to this caramel meringue. Oh, he's collapsed. Oh, just like my sex life. (laughs) It looks like a badly made McMuffin. (laughs) Oh, Steve, come on. Come on. Oh, God, it's so tasty. You're a weird man. I know. Like like Chinch, Southampton had fallen apart so badly towards the end of that 9-0, or like Chinch's meringue, Southampton had fallen <laughs> apart so badly by the, by the end of that 9-0, that most fans had left. But it, I, I wonder whether their pain would have been enhanced by the knowledge that going forward, that result was going to be mentioned every time Southampton played a home game for the next 12 months. It didn't matter who the opponent was. You'd have to relive that nightmare every time Southampton played a home game because the commentator would mention it. So your enjoyment or your experience of the game, I wonder whether it takes on a life outside of the, the 90 minutes as well under certain circumstances. And I wonder whether we, we can think about that in terms of those like relivable moments that your feeling towards the game will depend very much on what there is to talk about again afterwards. So how you will re-experience those key moments from the contest further down the line, whether they're extraordinary or whether they're the kind of things that you you expect to see from the game. You know, you expect to see a Lee Catamol yellow card. You expect to see a tricky winger getting infuriated by a right back. You expect to see Fernandinho fouling someone on halfway to break up a counter-attack and not getting booked for it. You, it, it those things that you, you come to anticipate from a game, actually by ticking off the boxes like a bingo card, helps you 
immerse yourself and enjoy the game even more. We're framing a lot of these high-scoring games um, through the lens of the loser, so Southampton or, or Reading with those with those two matches. But just a quick question: D- Did Leicester fans enjoy the nine-nil? Did they think it was a good game? Yes, probably. Did Did Spurs think that winning six-four against Reading was was a good game? Did they enjoy it? Probably. Yes. Did Did Portsmouth winning that seven-four think at the end of the day that was a, that was a brilliant game? Look, from from the point of view of either A, the loser, yes, being disengaged, but also B, those of us who are neutrals in all of these thinking, well, I'd like to come at it from a completely different point of view. That's that's different, isn't it? That's We are not considering that there are those there are groups of fans who win these games, even though to us they might seem completely pointless by the end of it, but they win those games and they might at the end of the day thought it was a brilliant game. But that's more on the relivable moments thing, Hugh, because those are the games which those are I, the I was there moments because they are those standout results. So having been there to witness it enhances your enjoyment of the game for, for a considerable amount of time afterwards, because you get to boast about having seen it with your own eyes, but surely there are results that Portsmouth fans will have enjoyed considerably more than that seven, four at the time of the final whistle blowing. They just might not have had quite the same element of recall in the aftermath. Mm. I was just going to ask whether you think that losing 9-0 to Leicester is the, is, has become the defining moment in Southampton's history. Like in, in 130 years of existence, they will now forever be known as the club that once got beaten 9-0. They, that was now over a year ago. And literally every time Southampton play, it is referenced. What well, do we think that that way about Ipswich? Because Ipswich in the mid nineties lost nine 0 to Manchester United, and probably that mm. still lingers lingers to an extent. Much. Or Palace losing nine 0 to Liverpool. That that those results are still mentioned. I bet if Ipswich got promoted, it would be the case that whenever they went to Old Trafford, it would be mentioned. Whenever they went more than three dollars down to a member of the bid six, the commentator would say. Shades now of, of the 9-0 defeat suffered by mm-hmm. Craig Forrest and his teammates. And it kind of does take on... I think Steve's right. I think a, a truly great game has to, has to have some kind of historic legacy. But, sure, but, but surely, that, like if, ha- you, if you get into... To linger. If you get into 6-9-0, it's natural that you're going to... Because I remember playing the Man City game where we beat Huddersfield 10-1. You get into double... Fit, you get to that. If you get beyond six... Is it not understandable that it, it sticks in the memory and is going to be continually? Because, again, you're getting way beyond. Even winning 6-0 is a complete battering of your opponents. But winning 9 or 10 becomes an embarrassment, doesn't it? And actually, that's why, presumably, surely it lingers. If if Southampton had lost 6-0, we wouldn't. Those three extra yeah, goals make a big difference, no. don't they? And, and what, what's interesting about it, and, and Rory and Steve, you both, both mentioned it, is that it becomes... From it takes the journey from being an emotional occasion for the two groups of fans, and particularly for Southampton fans, to something of a statistical significance. Because genuinely, every Southampton game it would appear on the television is covered by a commentator who marks like the beginning of the Premier League in 1992, and there being a new historical statistical period. Who marks everything from that nine nil, and it's oh Southampton's form since the nine nil. Southampton's home games since the 9-0. Ralph Hassenhuttle's ability to turn the team around since that 9-0. So it becomes of statistical significance. But do either of those things, the emotional engagement, whether good or bad, or a, a moment of great statistical significance, do they make either do either of those two things make the game a good game? Do, does a good game live in of itself outside 
of either of those two considerations or does it need one or both of them? No, no, no. It it can, they can be good. So I would say that the that Man City winning 6-1 at Old Trafford is a genuinely great game because the, although, because the stakes were high, because the quality was high and because of its kind of historical resonance that made, that qualified it as an absolute, you know, as a truly sort of marquee game. And I think the crucial test is as, a, as someone who doesn't have a vested interest in either of the teams or a connected vested interest in either of the teams. So you want Man United to lose because you're a Liverpool fan or you want Man City to win because it means Chelsea might finish third or whatever, whether you remember it. And I think that the 6-1 at Old Trafford, the Man City winning 6-1 at Old Trafford, for example, has a lot more case to be made for it of being a genuinely great game in a lot of different ways than, say, Spurs winning 6-1 at Old Trafford, which felt a lot more like, well, Spurs have won 6-1 at Old Trafford. And it was it was kind of significant. It was obviously created huge eruptions. It was helped a little bit by the fact that Liverpool lost 7-2 about two hours later. But it was, it didn't, to me, that doesn't have that same kind of historical significance as City doing it. The 9-0 and the various other 9 nils we've talked about, or even Man City 10, Huddersfield 1, in which Andy Hinchliffe not only played, but starred. Yeah, it's is... fair to say that. Yeah, that is fair to say. Yeah, Even though there were three players who scored hat-tricks, I still think I got a 9.5 out of 10 ahead of those three hat-trick people. Yeah, yeah. I would say they are iconic mm. scorelines rather than great games, which I know sounds like a really semantic difference, but I think it's important. I think you can have an iconic scoreline not attached to a great game. So yeah, Portsmouth 7, Reading 4, iconic scoreline, not a great game. The, the fact that they're iconic probably is more to do with the team that was on the receiving end rather than the team that was dishing it out. That it's mentioned much more, the 9-0 is mentioned much more in conjunction to Southampton than it is to Leicester. And likewise, yeah, Man, likewise yeah. with Manchester United and Ipswich. When, if United go 4 or 5-0 up in the first half of the game at Old Trafford, no one's saying, oh, it's Ipswich all over again. Whereas, as you quite rightly point out, if Ipswich were to fall behind by that margin, then that game would, would come back to the surface. So, it, it, yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that a team dishes out an absolute thumping and historically it's more significant for mm. the, the loser rather than the winner. The other game that ties in with what you were saying about the, the City beating United 6-1 is when United beat Arsenal 8-2. Yeah, because that game was... That despite the margin of United's advantage, it retained its tension and its drama because you were watching on, wondering just how bad is this going to get for Arsenal and how significant a, a moment could this prove to be in, in Arsene Wenger's tenure and, and where Arsenal go going forward. So I would say that that's a really good point. And what separates that game from Aston Villa 7, Liverpool 2 is that with Arsenal, you sensed losing 8-2 at Old Trafford had major long-term consequences. It meant a lot in terms of the status of the club. Villa 7, Liverpool 2 falls short of it, not just as there's one, one goal more at Old Trafford, because I think we're all agreed that, that to get a great game is not simply an equation of how many goals are there. That doesn't qualify it as a great game. And it's a misunderstanding, I think, of what fans want in football to assume that all fans want is more goals. I don't think that's right at all. With, with Villa beating Liverpool 7-2, it felt much more like an, an anomaly yeah. because you sensed that whatever happened, there wouldn't necessarily be... There might be short-term or even medium-term consequences for Liverpool, and we've seen that to an extent, that you know there's now 
even when they, they hadn't had their entire defence wiped out, there was a sense that Liverpool could now be got at and they've lost a bit of their aura and they're not, you know, they're not quite what they were and Villa have exposed that, you know, the, the weaknesses. But in terms of like ending Klopp's era at the club or call, you know, lots of calls for him to be sacked or instituting a massive regeneration programme of the team, none of that's going to follow. Whereas when Arsenal lost 8-2 at Old Trafford, I think the next day they went out and signed four players, didn't they? Something like that. Yeah, there, there were it felt like, all right, something has fundamentally shifted now rather than Liverpool losing at Villa. It was a tipping point rather than an anomaly, which was what happened at Villa Park. The other thing to to add to this is is what you've been speaking about, and that is the application of greatness to a game with time allowing us to appreciate its significance. So there will be those that at the time seem great, but then those who that appear to be great because of what then happens and transpires because of it being a trigger point or because of it being uh, of significance uh, on its own merits. There are those, for example, even in the 9-0, so the Crystal Palace 9-0 against Liverpool that, that, that you mentioned, Rory, that at the end of that season, Liverpool and Crystal Palace met in the semi-finals of the FA Cup and Palace, having lost 9-0 earlier on in the league, won that game by four goals to three. You could say that the the 4-3 was a great game, not only because it was a great game, but also because of the context of the 9-0. So it might not be that the 9-0 was a great game, but it provides a context for the greatness that might come Mm. later in that storyline. Yeah. And the the Palace beating Liverpool 4-3 in the the FA Cup semi-final was genuinely a great game. I'd say that's one of the greatest games. And that's an occasion where where goals add to the greatness of the game. So it's not that... it's not that goals actively detract from a game being great, but in certain contexts, they they either lift it to that level or they they exacerbate the great the inherent greatness of it. That Palace beating Liverpool four three was without question a great game. But I think what's interesting is that you could, I think later in in the later stages of a tournament, particularly the FA Cup from maybe what the quarters or the semis onwards, and pre like two thousand six. Um, I was going to say pre-1995, but yeah. Well, yeah, no, but I mean, so if you think about the, the, 2000, the 2005 final between United and Arsenal that went to penalties, and that, I mean, that, was, that is like the 2003 Champions League final is, is roundly remembered as being a dreadful football match. But I remember watching both of those games and not thinking they were dreadful at the time. And I think that in the later stages of any competition, you can basically serve up pretty much anything in the tension in the States and the, the kind of inherent balance between the teams. Will, might not make it a great game, but they'll probably lift it out of being a bad game. I'm not sure you can ever say like a Champions League final is bad because there's so much at stake. Having been at both of Steve those games, right. having been at both of those games you just mentioned, Rory, I can testify to them having been two of the worst football matches I've ever had the misfortune to sit through. But were you not absorbed by them? No, really? I don't know. I, I remember enjoying the 2003 Champions League final because it was the first time I had been to a Champions League final. But I do also remember the overwhelming sense of disappointment that it was such a damp squib of a, of a contest. And that 2005 FA Cup football, FA Cup final. Oh God, if I could, if I could erase that from my mind. Well, in fact, thankfully, nothing happened in the game to have taken up too much space in the memory bank. So where does the the, the Wembley Champions League final Barcelona-Man United sit in all this? 2011. Yes. In terms of, did it have, the game itself was extraordinary. Um, it, was it total dominance by as good as Barcelona could ever be? Were there any external consequences from that result as well? But I remember watching that game and feeling 
not just how Barcelona were brilliant. United did have obviously the threat. Rooney scores a fantastic goal, but was was again that considered a great game, or was it all with Barcelona? They didn't win it five or six, seven. It then maybe it takes it out of the realms. You can't. You think, well, this is just blue again. It's getting a bit embarrassing. But at three one, again, it's still a contest. You still got the emotion. It's still a drama. It's the Champions League final, and. I don't know. I just think that's one of the few games I've been thinking about it that really kind of struck me as being a, a fantastic spectacle. Or am, am I wrong in that? I normally am I th- wrong. I think you're right, Chinch. You are correct. I think that was... In fact, I, was, I did a thing. I can't remember why. It must have been before the um, the Bayern PSG final this year. Kind of thinking back to when the Champions League finals actually produced a truly great game. I think generally Champions League finals do disappoint a little bit because the expectations are so high. They're, te- they're generally okay and only only very occasionally are they bad games, but very few are great. So I think Real Madrid Liverpool in twenty eighteen was a mm-hmm. good game that was that had that had plenty of elements. I don't think Liverpool Spurs was a particularly good game. I think it was quite a bad game. That it, again the stakes are so high that it's not it's not kind of boring, but it, it was a really poor football match. It still had um, t- it had tension though, didn't it? It, it had tension, tension in it and it yeah, and it had, I guess, it had the kind of con- it had controversy, which it, again is something we're not touched on, but it's, it probably helps lift the game to to memorable status. And it had the kind of the explosion after Origi's goal. I think the 2015 final is underrated. Barca beating Juve, I think that was quite even for quite a long time. 2017, Real Madrid beat Juve 4-1, and it was a good-ish game, but not great. I think 2011 and 2013, when Bayern beat Dortmund, are probably the last really great finals. And you can maybe make a case for Bayern Chelsea in 2012 as well. That run between 2011 and 2013, I think you had three really, really good finals. And the 2011 game was probably the pick of them because just as the level, that United team was brilliant. Yeah. And the level of the teams in it, I mean, the fact that United were brilliant and Barcelona was so much better than them, that alone gave it like an era-defining quality, which I think is probably related to greatness. Yeah, I remember going to that game and 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 Steve, you were, you were there as well. There was a, a sense of kind of rarefied talent on show, but there was also a weird sense of inevitability as well because Barcelona yeah. were that good. Is, and, that, and is that, that when you two had the burger van? Yeah. must have done a roaring trade that, that evening, yeah? Yeah, we, we just, uh, Steve, Stephen Hughes chomp fest. Uh, we, <laughs> no, that doesn't sound right chomp at all, does it? <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds like something else in time. <laughs> <laughs> Why that, came, DVD that <laughs> why that came so instinctively to mind is something that <laughs> psychoanalysts need to spend quite a lot of time on. And indeed, probably my wife as well. Um, but there, there, there was, you're right, there is a sense of expectation. There is a sense of, a sense of heightened expectations because of, of what's at stake. There is, uh, there is also the possibility, and this, this I think lies outside of any expectations when it comes to goals. There is also the possibility that, as you mentioned, Rory, controversy can do its own work in this conversation. You can have no goals. You can have a terrible game in terms of the tactical interest, in terms of the ability of those players performing on the field. But genuinely, if you have a a narrative, a storyline, a moment, a controversy, that can elevate a game and it can often paper over the cracks and and cover a multitude of sins in the other parts of the conversation that we've been having. But, But can you have a good game based solely on that moment that sells it and elevates it above the normal conversations that, that you would have about a game of football. Yeah, because those controversies can can be relivable moments as well. And Rory used the word pantomime earlier to re- refer to a high-scoring game. You know, pantomime villains, they can enhance a game. If you, if you see a pantomime villain doing villainous things, 
then that is something that you can talk about after the game. It, it raises the experience, doesn't it? So I think those are all key components as well. That it doesn't have to necessarily be the excitement of goals or goal scoring opportunities. It, they, other other talking points can lift the game above the mundane and, and enable you to, to relive them in, in, in different ways. Uh, the final point I want to bring up is is the the prospect of an individual performance elevating that game uh, to goodness to greatness. And um, Tommy Dolman sent this email in a long time ago, and it just so happens that it chimes with exactly this. And you'll be interested to note as well some of the language that he uses in the latter part of the email chimes with what we've been saying on the podcast so far uh, today. Morning, chaps. He says I was watching a classic Premier League match the other day on TV, which happened to involve my beloved Leeds United, and it got me thinking about how I didn't quite realise this at the time as a youngster, but the significance of Mark. Viduka's four-goal haul against Liverpool in the 2000-2001 team would have a massive impact on football in Australia. To have a familiar, well-known and loved player seemingly single-handedly taking apart one of the biggest names in English football really hit the headlines and no doubt played a massive part in many Australians latching onto the Premier League and indeed Leeds United, who still have a significant following here. So my question is about individual performances. Sometimes they can be seemingly one-offs in a career context, like Egil Ostenstadt's hat-trick for Southampton against Manchester United, where someone a little more unlikely has an unplayable day. Viduka's was unreal, but at least he delivered over a more sustained period. Other examples of note to me are Tim Howard's 16 save in the 2014 World Cup against Belgium and Walter Samuel's performance against Barcelona in 2010 with the famous Jose rearguard against Pep. Are there specific markers we look for to highlight an incredible individual performance, i.e. drama, unlikeliness, quality of opposition, influence on the game or facilitating for someone else to do the business, a career-defining performance or one on debut or on the biggest stage? Love your work as always, Tommy. Can that, like controversy perhaps, uh, be enough uh, for a game to be good? I was at that USA game against Belgium, which I think was in Salvador in Brazil. Uh, although it might not, it might have been in the other city that I covered during that tournament, which is a candidate for the aforementioned difficult names to pronounce. Does it spell R-E-C-I-F-E, which looks to British eyes like Recife, but in, in Brazilian Portuguese it's pronounced Recife. And they have a team called Sport, Sport Recife. Uh, that is difficult to say. Uh, but that was a genuinely great game. That was a really, 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 really exciting, compelling, kind of absorbing contest. Lifted to an extent by Tim Howard, but it didn't, that wasn't the only thing that was remarkable about it. Like the way the two teams went at each other was was properly like breathtaking and breathless. Um, but I think that's right. I think a, a truly stellar individual performance can lift a game to, to memorables. And I guess that's what we're talking about, isn't it? We're talking about, Great, great, great in this case is like a synonym for, for memorability. And if you can, if, if you remember something about the game, then it, um, then it is lifted beyond the ordinary. And I think Messi at the Bernabeu in the 5-2 is one of those where you just watched it and think and thought this is, this is something to actively remember. Neymar in the 6-1 when, when Barca beat PSG lifted that. Does, I mean, he defined the result. It was, it was a game that he shaped himself, but um his performance in that was was properly like all right this is this is something else ronaldo the original ronaldo in pretty much every game for barcelona and in his first couple of years at inter there was a 1-0 that you you maybe into 1-0 i think in 1999 or 98 a really controversial game which i remember watching on channel 4 and would qualify as a great game despite only having one goal in it just because of the tension and the drama and the stakes and the the controversy um but watching ronaldo in his pomp was was enough to lift a game beyond the ordinary because you sensed that you were watching something phenomenal. Um, 
and I think that's that's a crucial ingredient as well. You don't have to have it because you can have a great system performance, like a like a team performance that that takes your breath away. But if you if you do if you do watch a game where there is a truly great individual performance, then then I think that that do, that is a really important quality in, in greatness. Yeah, I think individual yeah displays. Of course, that's another element of of what fans would enjoy and obviously hate if you if those players are up against you. But I just wonder through the decades as well. If you're looking at what makes a great game, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s and through, has that, have we, because the, the game has changed to a degree, have, have our kind of view of what we consider to be great games changed as well? Because, and I wonder whether hindsight plays a, a part in this as well. Looking back, did at the time we appreciate how good a game was, but maybe with the passage of time, you look back and then realise what comes off the back of uh, a certain game. So I wonder whether, that with Mark Viduka there, at the time you're thinking this is incredible, but what it actually means as time passes and what happens to those two clubs, you then look back and say, crikey, now, if I watch that game again, I know it's very different because you're going back and experiencing it on, on the screen rather than in person. Surely that, again, you must change your view of certain matches from the past as well. But I just wonder, again, over the decades, has our, you know, watching football from the, the 70s, watching that uh, Brazil World Cup final uh, with, with Pelé, and you think, well, that was that of its time? Would that still be considered if that was played today? A great game and would it be appreciated because it's a World Cup final it probably would be would, would it still be appreciated because again the game and the way that it's played has changed do we do we ask different questions now in terms of how how we consider a great a game is I've watched both that the 1970 final and the, the 1970 semi-final the game of the century between Brazil and Italy and they are both great games but if, if you saw them now the first question everyone would ask is why is nobody running around because mm-hmm. they are they are played basically at walking pace it looks like an advert for Bartos. Consider a game of its time, and it, it, consider what was at yeah, stake. You, you still has to be considered great. Well, a game of its time and of its location, it was played. At, they were both played at altitude and, and in searing heat. I think so. That there was a reason that no one was running around. But they they were great games because the skill level on show and the states and the the kind of iconic players and, and all that stuff, the colour. But I I think by mo- it doesn't look like the football we're used to. So I think watching it now, if you were like twenty five and you watched it, you you would think this is very 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 slow. But if you're aware of the history and the significance and you can admire the beauty within that, then then you would see why it's why they're considered great games, but you have to consider them according to their context. In the same way as if you watch the, the 1953 Magic Magyar game, you would wonder why England are so tactically rigid and don't appear to be able to do anything to stop the Hungarians doing the same attack again and again. But so England haven't because... really evolved then for, for, for decades <laughs> no. after decades. They're still doing the same things. They are still firemen rushing to the wrong fire, England, in quite a lot of ways. No, they're, they're firemen rushing to a flood. That's the major problem. They don't even know where the fire is, to put it out. Yeah, con- context is vitally important, isn't it? And that's what, what that contributes to, to greatness, is, yeah. is, is the context of, of the game and, and that you can look back on it and, and see the significance of it. It doesn't necessarily depend on, on when you re-watch the game as to whether or not it had the the exceptional moments of brilliance that you, you've come to expect in the same way as, you know, I, re- I remember a, a Merseyside derby uh, when Steve McMahon and, and Peter Reid were flying into each other all of the time. And what made that game so compelling was the fact that you had two determined, committed central midfielders who were just completely unwilling 
to to give up on throwing themselves into every challenge. Where of course and that, that, was in the, that was in the warm up stage. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That was in the fight to try and get a nice burger at the Steve <laughs> Chomp Shop outside. Chomp, That's what that chomp was. fest, not chomp, chomp shop. Chomp fest. Chomp Don't try and make it better, Ferris. I've decided that Chomp Shop sounds much better. It's got a European flavour when you put fest, which makes it slightly more sinister. That's what I'm saying. Willkommen and bin Steve und Hughes Chomp fest. <laughs> There you go. See, international licensing. Let let the dollars roll in. Chinch, Chinch, I began this conversation, given that you've just spoken about the nature of rose-tinted spectacles, looking back on a storied career of great highs and many, many, many deep and despairing lows. Um, yes. Can you can you answer the question I posed at the beginning? What's what's the greatest game that you were involved in? Um, well, I suppose in terms of a score, I think about the, the 4-4 FA Cup draw between Everton and Liverpool at Goodison, where... Everton came back four times to, to draw the game. But actually, we, yeah, it was. But actually, Steve, I, I don't feel, as a, a fan, would you say, well, my team played well? Because you're so invested. It's a Merseyside derby. You just want to win. You, I don't, I'm not sure either team played well, but the game finished for all. And it, it's been talked about and talked about. But I, I, I convinced, you know, as pros and the, the coaches would say, well, nothing went to plan there. Would the fans come away from that thinking... They probably think in Liverpool fans are thinking, how the hell have we not won that? Everton fans are delighted to get a second bite of the cherry, which we did. I think we won the replay uh, 1 0 and then thought we're going to win the cup. And then we lost to West Ham in the next round. So it all, all was for nothing anyway. But that was the one game where you think, well, it was a must have been, it was a real contest. It was kind of, they were a better team than we were, but we kept going and we kept coming back. And you had Tony Cotty coming off the bench and the drama of mistakes and goals. And it was a night game as well, which I think gives it a kind of a, a sense of atmosphere, which I, that's why I always enjoy playing night games. I think, again, they, they bring something different. Um, but yeah, I don't think either team played well in that match, yet it's one of the most talked about. The 5-1 Manchester derby, the, you know, I scored that fifth goal. And that seems to be the goal that everyone mentions. You know, you're talking about score lines. There were some great goals scored in that, but the second and third goals aren't really mentioned. It's like the fifth goal, which was like the icing on the cake. Over time, that seems to have taken on. That game is now the 5-1, whether it's the fact we scored five, and I got the fifth, or how good the goal was, it, that has taken on, again, a, a life of itself. But it wasn't really a contest, because we, again, dominated the game. So, But as a pro, you're thinking, well, I don't know. Sometimes if you go to... to old, I remember going to the Old Trafford with Everton and winning 2-0 and putting in a really dominant display. As a pro, you come away thinking, to go to Old Trafford and win under any circumstances is impressive. So actually that would have given me as a player. And I'm always looking at it from a player's perspective. It is very hard because I could, you, you tried not to get emotionally invested in the game. So if you did that, it distracted you from what you're there to do. So that's why, again, I'm interested in a fan's view of a game. It's very different. From 16 years old, I was thinking as a professional player would think about a game. So again, that changes then even games that you're not involved in, that you watch. You still think, well, if I was playing this game, this is what I'd be doing. I'd be trying to deal with that player or, or, or that's happening, so we need to stop it. So it changes, I think, your enjoyment, your emotional involvement because you play. And that 4-4, was, wasn't that the, the game before Kenny Dalglish resigned as Liverpool? It was. Yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah. so you get Again. all the drama. Of, yeah, but I don't think that was... Yes, it was mentioned, but still the scoreline itself is it's the 4-4 draw. It's not the game before Kenny Dalglish left and it was 4-4. It was the scoreline that is the first thing that was mentioned. And the fact that I think Everton came back four times. You know, we weren't in the lead at any point. So, yeah, I think, yeah. But then that added another dramatic edge to it. And people then, with hindsight, would say, wow, that really was an important game because Kenny left. I just to just mentioned two games there, which I think sum up everything we've talked about is that those relivable moments, it had drama, it had context. And although the two very different scorelines, the, the impact of them has, impact of both games has been long lasting. So good examples. <laughs> 
Uh, so we, we're, we're already asking you to uh, send us the team names that sound the most different to how they look on the page. We're also going to ask you now, just out of interest, to set me at gmail.com. Uh, given that we've just been speaking about a number of criteria about what makes a good game, can you put them all together in a game of your experience? Let us know, setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Now, normally it would be time for Nevermind Jack and Ori, what a soccer story, but we've just had Chin to tell us a story of his playing days with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. So the fear of being over exposed to the mighty Chinchmeister. I just wanted to mention at this point uh, of the podcast that we've had a lot of response, Chinch, to your soccer story from SPM 203. Um, so I which wanted, was? Which Remind was, me. I'm, I'm glad you've already forgotten. Uh, yes. Which is the one where you talked about some doubts that you'd had over the course of the oh, summer. Right, yes. Some of the mental health okay. struggles that you've had in recent years as yeah. well. Um, right. SPM 203, if you're new to the podcast and, and haven't heard that. Um, so I wanted to reflect some of it because there, there are those who... Uh, very much wanted to contribute to the conversation. I wanted to thank you for your thoughts. This is part of the reason I wanted to do this because I felt it would strike a chord. Not I'm trying to say, you know, feel sorry for me. I'm actually, again, this is what I wanted to do with the community that we've, uh, or you've all created. It's important. I think it's it's an important mission, uh, important um, issue for everybody to maybe be uh, be aware of. You're, you're the pillar of that community, Chinch. I, I would see myself as more the concrete foundations on which the temp, your footballing temple is built. And that is why Chinch continues to communicate with us by fax. <laughs> <laughs> is that F-A-X, not F-A-C-T-S? Yeah, yeah very much F-A-X. You do sound like you're about to go... <laughs> so, Are you um, on an AOL dial-up? Yes, whilst, whilst Chinch resets his modem, um, there, a lot of people have sent in emails that... Um, they didn't want read out on the podcast. We thank you for those. But uh, this is from someone who did want the email read out, but would rather us not use his name. Dear Hugh Pugh, Barney McGrew, Cuthbert Dibble and Chinch. Uh, just a quick email to say, I really appreciated Chinch speaking so openly and frankly about his struggles with self-esteem and anxiety. I've always admired him immensely, first as a player and subsequently as a commentator. I am all too familiar with paralyzing anxiety and crippling self-doubt. And to hear that someone so talented and competent has these struggles is a massive reassurance. As it happens, I get on stage and blather at people for a living. And it is very comforting to know the urge to simply give in and walk out happens to the very best of us and can be eased with the right support. Just wanted to express my gratitude. Please don't read my name out because I'm not presently ready to be as candid as Andy was. Keep up the good work. Best wishes to you all. And this is from our self-proclaimed Northern correspondent, Chris Lomax, who says, evening, Andy, as he writes to Andy in the evening. Mm -hmm. Thank you for being so open at the end of pod 203. It was nice to hear someone being so open about their mental health, especially someone as successful as you. Seeking help tends not to be spoken about by the more successful members of our society. My father is a long-term alcoholic and I've had to seek counseling as the impacts of the COVID lockdown and his alcoholism meant I started to behave in not my normal way. I was being sharp, aggressive, and generally he says, I wanted to write to say I hope that you're not as stuck anymore but please keep talking about it if you are please don't clam up but I also wanted to thank you Hugh Rory and Stephen as you have unwittingly helped me maintain some semblance of normality in the really trying times. The pod to me is an anchor no matter what is going on I get to listen to four friends talking about the minutiae of this wonderful game that we love or put up with. This allows me to forget the outside world in that moment, live in the now and chuckle as Rory sets off on a hipster monologue or as Stephen chews throughout a pod introduction. Thank you and genuinely keep up the good work. It is good. That's Chris Lomax who is from Bolton. So I just wanted to read out a couple. I'm sure there'll be more of the coming weeks and if you're happy for them to be read out, uh, I'm sure we're happy to, to reflect your thoughts because it is an important subject and I'm glad Chinch that uh, you feel like that, uh, that has been reflected in some of the correspondence. 
Yeah, I think what we do, yeah, we talk about football because that's what we're here to do, but we also talk about a lot of other stuff as well, not just whether you should use a, a Phillips uh, head screwdriver or a flathead. We, we do move into areas slightly away from football, which I, I, it does bring people close together. It's what it's all about. You know, Steve and I, when we're, you know, when we're allowed to, to travel around the country together, we talk a right load of bollocks, to be fair. And it isn't always, it isn't ever about football. It's absolute rubbish. But it's so vital. It's so vital to both Steve and myself, but mainly Steve. <laughs> it's it's really interesting that that, that there, have, there has been a lot of correspondence, and it's it's interesting how many people feel the need of picking up on the sense that a sense of community. And it's something I felt last year and continue to feel. But it's I think in, in given the year we've had, and you know now obviously we're all busy building temples to Pfizer and Moderna. Does that going to get us out of it? But the um, <laughs> the the year we've had people, I think probably there's probably a lot of people who are feeling that sort of disconnected from a lot of their usual social anchors. And it is, it means, it really, well, I don't, know, I don't know about you three, but it means a lot to me to sense that not only to have that community there for, for us, but to, to sense that we might be this nonsense podcast that has never, if we're all honest, never really got, gotten off the ground, never kind of fulfilled the dreams we had for it, is, um, is of use you mean it's to never people. brought in the That's money? Really nice. Is that what you mean? Never, we continue to be completely unpaid. Yes, our marketing department is awful. It is. It is completely non-existent, and that is. In fact, remember. In fact, that's a good point. We did an ad, and I've not seen a penny. Yes, you have. You have. You have. I have it. You have. You. We showed it to you on the screen. (laughs) So you've seen the penny. I'm going to go back to my bank statement. If anyone's given me giving me any money. Rory, you sent me your bank details. So if you think that you did that did and got nothing from it, then you're Hugh, an idiot. <laughs> I send a, I send a lot money? of people my bank details. <laughs> oh my How much money do you have to earn before you forget that you've been paid? And actually, because we get paid so rarely, you think you'd remember it. I'm you must check. be on, you I must think, be on I billions think, of pounds, Smith. I think Hugh stiffed me. We well, have a jump shop. We have a, York, <laughs> a Yorkshireman to whom we've given a large sum of money. And he's forgotten about, how's that happen? I thought you remembered every it's single Stephen, time you came in and went out. Stephen, whatever it was, it definitely wasn't a large <laughs> sum of money. Well, I'm, I'm glad that we are um, completely living up to expectations just outlined by both uh, Rory and Chinch moments ago. Do keep your correspondence of any nature. Indeed, advertising opportunities can be sent to setpiecemenu at gmail.com because the marketing department genuinely is flatlining right now. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Rory, Andy and Stephen and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. You know those that those iconic games that those I, I was there moments, and you seem to find an awful lot more people who claim to have been there than possibly could have been. It's a bit like that famous like Spike game, Island. That that famous yeah exactly that famous game at Blackburn where the Manchester City fans watched from the from the hill in the corner, and you cannot move in Manchester without meeting a Manchester City fan who claims to have been there to the point where there's now a joke that there was two hundred thousand Manchester City fans on that hill. Do you think in like 20, 30 years time there's going to be Aston Villa fans claiming that they were at Villa Park for the seven two over <laughs> Liverpool, and people will take them seriously when they watch the footage of the game and see the stadium was completely empty. Well, I'm glad oh, that Grandma, this... tell me about the seven two. Oh, well, <laughs> I, I got there early. <laughs> I'm glad that this is. Yeah, I'm glad this isn't uh, been an exercise in in bringing up uh, Rory's story about watching Zlatan Ibrahimovic and his overhead kick in the four uh, four the uh, the win against England in which he scored four goals. Have I mentioned that? <laughs> have you mentioned that? Yes, you have mentioned that. Mentioned it's, it. it's maybe something I should have mentioned during the course of the conversation. That the lack of fans at games. Are we are we going to 
Are we going to look at games differently because there were no fans there? Is that going to always yeah. be the asterisk? With Legendary be... stories cannot be built up over time yeah, yeah. and telling. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But also, to be fair, that's a really good point from Chinch that he's made after we finished talking <laughs> oh, about it. Oh, damn you. The, Keep this in you. Keep the, this in the edit. It's going to be really hard to think of any of the games in the kind of COVID period as great games just because the backdrop is so sterile. I, the one exception, I guess, is Bayern beating um, Barcelona 8-2. That might be, that might be enough to, to sort of become an iconic performance. But I don't know if it, I, don't, I actually don't know if it can be a great game without fans there. Do you feel our podcasts have maybe dipped during the? the have we still maintained a very very high standard? No, the quality's increased, Chinch. I mean, it's you move into Timbuktu and having such poor internet has not helped. <laughs> but the um, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Apart from that, yeah, we've been okay. Um, I mean, we we, ne we never really hit great anyway, did we? To be fair, we'd have made more advertising money if we had. <laughs> 